Uh, <clears throat> there's some other folks who I don't think I see here today. I think they, they had to be out of town, but uh, uh, I, I coordinate the small group ministry over at Chantilly, so oftentimes I also get to connect with the Montgomery family. And if you don't know them, you'd want to get to know them because they're the point of contact here uh, for small groups. And um, interestingly enough, if I can insert this somewhat parenthetically, about six years ago, I was uh, a school counselor at Freedom High School down in South Riding and had the privilege of seeing their son, Nick, give the valedictory speech at graduation. And I remember thinking, not so much excitement, though there was excitement about him being the valedictorian, but more or less for me, about the character with which he stewarded that responsibility and, and that honor. And for me, it spoke volumes of Karen and David's stewardship of their home and their ministry on the home front. So to come back around now and be able to serve with them in this space has been an absolute privilege and an absolute, absolute honor. And if you didn't know, if you're visiting perhaps for the first time, second, third, maybe a year or two, like uh, Jermaine said, but you have yet to join a small group, let me be the, the 101st person to encourage you to do just that. We believe very strongly in living life together. In fact, Ephesians 4, 16 says, From him, speaking of Christ, the whole body joined and held together by each supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Teammates matter. We need each other. So if you're not a part of a small group where, if you're interested on what we, about what we do in small groups, you're with 8 to 12 other individuals with whom you will uh, connect relationally, eat some good food, maybe... Jessica, there'll be some bacon-covered donuts at a small group. Maybe I'll come to your small group for that. And uh, break God's word as well. So you're connecting relationally, you're growing as disciples, and then you're multiplying the effectiveness of what's happening in your group to your respective sphere of influence. So if not connected, please get connected uh, soon. So turn with me. We're going to shift and turn to the word of God. Uh, If you would, to John 20, chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. John chapter 19, verses 19, I'm sorry, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. We're going to be continuing the series that Pastor David has been preaching on called The Spirit-Filled Life. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. Let's pray. Lord, this is the day that you have made, and we, are, we rejoice and we are so glad in it. Help us now as we study your word. Open up our eyes so that we may see the wonderful things in your law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22. And it reads, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Verse 22, he says, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. The title of this message is The Spirit-Filled Life. Expect the Unexpected. So this summer, and Elder J.C. alluded to this, uh, we will be celebrating my bride, Taylor, and I, 12 years of marriage. Amen? We are excited about celebrating uh, this wonderful union that we started in 2005 back in Columbus, Ohio. And I was born and raised in New York, for those of you who do not know, the youngest of four children. My older brother, Mike, and his family is here today. My oldest brother, Chuck, is also here. Uh, My sister, Wanda, is serving over at the Chantilly campus right now, and we're also blessed to have our parents who this summer 
will be celebrating 60 years of marriage. To God be the glory, my mom is saying. Amen. Uh, And my wife was born and raised in Columbus, Ohio, where I just mentioned we were married. And she was the youngest or is still the youngest of three children. And, babe, I think you'd agree. We met back in 2002 in college um, right here in Virginia. Neither one of us wanted to go back to our hometown, so we stayed in Virginia. Um, And I think you'd agree that, that we're just getting started. 12 years, we feel like we're just getting started. Mom and Dad, you'll probably confirm. Yeah, you're just getting started. It's a whole lot more getting to know each other, and we're looking forward to getting to know each other a bit more. But there are some things that are safe, if you will, to say that we could expect from the other person and we could expect for the other person not to do. For example, um, <clears throat> I will never expect for Taylor to, when we're out at a restaurant, to order seafood. It's not going to happen. She will not. I'm praying for her deliverance on that end, <laughs> that she will experience the salvific work of salmon and rockfish and, and crab legs. But uh, kidding aside, she's not going to do that. I also know of, of Taylor that if we're in any social gathering, while she may engage in some small talk, she's really not going to love that small talk. She's just a trooper and taking one for the team when we have to go out in that regard. But conversely, she knows of me that she can expect me to probably not read a novel, which sounds bad, don't judge, but I just love to read nonfiction, and I'm working on this whole thing of reading fiction. She loves to read and passes my way some really good novels that I, that I need to pick up. She also would expect of me never to drink coffee because, I don't know, I guess I have sense. I don't, <laughs> that's a joke for all the coffee drinkers, don't get up and leave. Oh. She knows that it doesn't agree with me. It actually nauseates me. We have jokes back and forth about that because, um, because she, loves, she loves coffee. In fact, uh, instead of being in those social gatherings doing small talk, she would rather nothing than to be on a mountain in Charlottesville or in a coffee shop or Starbucks, if you will, with the coffee and a few books uh, with her. That would be her happy, fl- happy place. But um, there are those times in marriage relationships, and I would say in this sense, in other relationships as well, that when you might expect for somebody not to do something, but then they actually do it, right? So the unexpected becomes what is your reality. And so in, in, in our relationship, uh, I can go back to, what was it, 2010. Taylor was pregnant with our first child, Elliot, who's six and over in Kid Builders now. And she had morning sickness that was just awful. And it was morning, afternoon, and night for all 40 weeks for all three children. Thank you, babe. I love you. Um, we didn't know that at the time. It was the first baby. And so uh, the unexpected, what she would not expect me to do is boil some hot dogs and then fry the hot dogs, a smell that she wouldn't even like even if she were not pregnant, to do so when she was pregnant. So, yeah, I did that, the, the unexpected, and I apologize to all women on behalf of men who do boneheaded things like that. I had no idea whatsoever, no idea. Um, but now we, we have three wonderful children, as was mentioned, and we have learned to carry extra clothes in the car with us, right? We've learned to, uh, to leave, start leaving the house maybe an hour before we actually have to get out of the door because we are learning to expect the unexpected, course, natural analogies such as the ones I've just described always fall short of the spiritual truths that we govern our lives by. But in a very real sense, Jesus also wants us to expect the unexpected when it comes to what he says 
he will do, no matter how antithetical it might be to the culture within which we live. And so the truth is we can have the knowledge of what he's capable of doing, yet fear related to our circumstances could paralyze us, completely deflate our expectations of what Jesus can and actually wants to do in our lives. And to that end, the question that I would really want us to focus on or reflect on today is, what do we expect from Jesus? What do we expect from Jesus? And I believe the text that we've read, John chapter 20, verses 19 through 22, gives us five different things that we can expect from him. Firstly, our text suggests that he comes. Secondly, he calms. Thirdly, he confirms. Fourth, he breathes. And lastly, he bids. Apostle John is believed to have written this book of John around the year 80, 90, uh, 85 to 90. Uh, from Ephesus of Asia, and its purpose, which is stated near the end of the book, is to focus on the signs and wonders of Jesus so that when those who might read it would then come to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And if we go back a little bit to the 19th chapter, John describes the death of Jesus Christ. He describes the burial of Jesus Christ. And then in the 20th chapter, John begins with Mary Magdalene going to the tomb where Jesus was laid, only to find that it was empty. The stone that covered the tomb was, was rolled away. And without even going in, she runs off, finds Simon and John, and tells them, listen, Jesus is missing. So Peter and John, what do they do? They run to where the tomb is, and certainly they figure out that she's telling the truth. Though in verse 9 of that chapter, it says they still didn't quite understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. So they just notice that it's empty. So they go back. Mary's outside of the tomb crying when two angels come to her and say, Mary, what are you doing crying? She begins to give them an answer. Jesus is missing. And as she's talking to these two angels, she turns around and Jesus is standing there. And he too begins to ask her similar questions. What are you doing crying? Who is it that you're looking for? And she, not recognizing that it's Jesus Christ at the moment, actually thinking in fact that he's a gardener, says something to the effect of, did you place him somewhere? Can you tell me where you've laid the body of Jesus? And then Jesus calls her, by her name. He says, Mary, Mary. And immediately she recognizes who she is. She turns around and says to him, Rabboni, which in Aramaic means teacher. And Jesus then says, okay, don't hold on to me. You can't hold on. You got to go. You got to tell my brothers that I'm going to ascend to the father. Mary does just that. She runs. She tells uh, the disciples what she saw, that Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead and that she just saw him. And then we pick up here in the 19th verse where Jesus is appearing to his disciples for the first time after having risen. But before it appears, it says that the disciples were all sitting in a room with the door locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Given the events of the previous few days, this wasn't uncommon to, to find. In fact, if you remember the blind man that Jesus healed in John chapter 9, you'll recall that when the Jewish leaders came to inquire of his parents, who did this and what's going on? The parents were like, oh, uh, he's old enough. Go ahead and ask him what happened because they knew that if you confess Jesus as being the Messiah, you could be put out of the synagogue. In John 12, 42, it says that there were those even in authority who believed in Jesus Christ, but they did so secretly. However, the disciples, unlike those that I just mentioned, had just heard from Mary that morning and other women and men later in the afternoon who were on, their road, on the road to Emmaus, as Luke, Luke's account uh, tells it, 
They had just heard that Jesus had risen from the dead, yet fear filled their hearts to such a degree that faith could not find room. Luke 24 and 11 says, But they did not believe the woman because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Has there ever been a time where we've missed truth, capital T, because of paralyzing fear of an earthly situation? Or perhaps maybe we've ignored truth, perhaps because of the vessel through whom the truth was being presented to us. And this brings us to the first point of emphasis for today. He comes. Jesus comes. Here the disciples sit in a locked room, and then Jesus comes in and he stands among them. Let's be honest, at times many of us could be just like these disciples. Jesus says he's on the way, and yet we are still surprised at his arrival. It's like the friend that you have who you tell 30 minutes ahead of time, the time that you really want him or her to be there, and then if he does show up on time, you're actually shocked and think something's wrong when they do that. We can treat Jesus just like that. He said, I'm coming. He told them, in fact, what needed to actually happen. He was going to die, be buried, and have to rise from the dead. And yet they still seem surprised. They're locked in this room. I pray that that peace encourages us because I believe God wants to come to each of our lives, particularly those spaces in our lives that are locked, if you will, uh, due to fear that's related to some earthly condition that he's already told us he's overcome. John 16, 33 says, in this world you'll have trouble, but have peace. I've overcome the world. It could be a child, perhaps, that has gone astray, a marriage that seems like it's hopeless, or maybe a job in which you feel like people are digging ditches in front of you every day of the week. Whatever the situation is, Jesus will show up, and he will show up every time, on time. And maybe you're sitting here today, and you've actually received a pretty specific word from God about what he wants to do in your life, how he wants to come to your life. My prayer then is that you would declare with boldness that fear will not paralyze you and lock you in that metaphorical room, believing anything different. In fact, Isaiah's account says it this way. His word that goes out will not return empty. It's going to accomplish that which he desires and achieve the purpose for which it was sent. So the text says this. It says he stood in their midst, and the Greek translation implies that he was standing in such a way so as to establish his presence among them. How many know that in his presence there is fullness of joy. There's peace, there's healing, there's deliverance. David says it this way in one of my favorite scriptures, Psalm 27 and 4. There's one thing that I desire and that I will seek after, and that is to dwell in the house or the presence of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Matthew 6:33 says it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, these things meaning the, the things that occurred in the, 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 the prior verses, all these things will be added unto you. After Jesus, having established his presence, he then says, peace be with you. Second point, he calms. And him saying, peace be with you, is actually a fulfillment of the promise given in John chapter 14, verse 27, which says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Peace be with you. When Jesus speaks, chaos has to calm. I believe it's the eighth chapter of Matthew after Jesus had calmed the storm and those who were with him said something to the effect of, who is this? What kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? I don't know what areas of your life may be chaotic today. 
But Jesus certainly wants to speak peace into your situation today, peace into your relationships, peace into your finances, peace even after the incomprehensible loss that perhaps you've experienced in this life, peace even after the medical diagnosis. I can remember when we took our son to um, the doctor. This is, he was, he's five years old now. This is when he was about 22 months, so not quite two years old yet. We took him to the doctor. He was a little bit more lethargic than we thought he should have been, and so... My wife drove him. I was actually at the office that day, I think is the way it played out. And Taylor takes him to the office and they draw his blood. They send him home. And then we get a call not, not too far after that saying, uh, with a calm voice, I might add, they were very good about saying sternly but calmly, you need to take him to the emergency room now. My wife calls me. I'm running from the office home. We get our kid, Tofs, who is call him Tofs, Christopher Tofs, it's his nickname. We grab him, we take him to the hospital, and literally, you know how in the ER you're like, oh man, we're going to have to sit there for a long time, what's this going to be like? There's a team of people waiting for us at the hospital for him, and in fact, on his way back to the room, one of the doctors was saying, why isn't he seizing? Why, why isn't he having any seizures? And we didn't know what they were talking about. Of course, later we find out that his blood sugar had dropped to 27 and low is 70 to give you about a sense of where he was. And 60 is where they say, you, you need to like get some serious help. So he's at a 27, which is why the doctors were saying, why isn't he having seizures? But it was almost as if in that moment, though if I'm honest, I was probably in too much shock to really recognize the presence of God in that moment saying, I'm here. Peace be with you. And in the, even in the years that have passed since then, we've had a couple of incidents with the hypoglycemia, but other things where doctors are literally saying, we don't quite know what's up with your son. Jesus has come and he is with us each and every step of the way saying, my peace, regardless of the earthly condition, my peace is with you. Peace be with you. And the wonderful, wonderful thing is about, or in addition, if you will, to that good news of his peace being us, being with us in the situations that we might encounter is then we now then have the opportunity to take his peace be an ambassador, if you will, of his peace in the chaotic spaces that we occupy. When we speak, we should speak like First uh, Peter four eleven, I believe, says that we should speak the very words of God. And I would even challenge each of us in here to, to reflect upon another question, which is, when you speak, is it peace being facilitated or commotion being perpetuated in the spaces that you occupy? Jesus goes a bit further to identify himself because according to Luke 24 and 37, they thought they were seeing a ghost. So now he's revealing himself, revealing the evidence of who he is, confirming his identity, which brings us to the third point of emphasis that he confirms. He says, look, remember the nails? See? See the nail prints in my hand? You see here where they pierced me in my side with a, a spear? And in Luke 24, 39, he says, a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And perhaps I'm the only one in this room who has ever needed for God in his infinite mercy to confirm his identity for me when I fail to recognize him. And don't get me wrong, I appreciate when he does just that. I'm very grateful that he helps me to continue to fix my eyes on the sovereign king that he's always been. But the truth is I don't want to have to need those moments. So Lord, help us all to recognize and not be paralyzed by fear or blinded by fear, but to recognize truly when the Lord does indeed show up in our lives. And at this, his disciples were overjoyed. 
which is fulfilling the promise spoken of in John chapter 16, verse 20, which says, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And after confirming his identity, he then says in verse 21, knowing that they didn't quite get it the first time, peace be with you. And as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And to be clear, when he was sent, it wasn't to condemn the world, but rather to save the world through him, John 3 and 17 says. And similarly, our job, our opportunity, our calling, if you will, is to be salt and light in our spheres of influence such that God, not us, would get the glory out of the good deeds that we exhibit. And with that, we come to the fourth point, which says he breathes. He breathes. Breathe on. That phrase there is only used once in the Septuagint translation, which is a uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament. And that one time occurs in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, which if you were here a few weeks ago, you remember was the text that Pastor David spoke from in this same series, The Spirit-Filled Life, where God literally breathed on Adam and he became a living soul. And so just as the original creation was completed by an act of God, the new creation, if you will, um, has also been completed by an act of God. It recalls even the imagery of God's breath of life in Ezekiel, the story of the dry bones, Ezekiel 37, where in verse 9 it says, Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, son of man, prophesy, say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come, breathe from the four winds and breathe into the slain that they may live. The ultimate goal of Christ appearing was to allow them to be birthed by the Spirit by breathing life into them. It says he breathed on them, and it says receive the Holy Spirit. Now, up to this point, uh, the, the, the Spirit had yet to be given because he had yet to be glorified. So here he breathes, making the Holy Spirit available. And then our fifth and final port, point, he bids, he suggests, he urges, he calls upon us to do what? To receive the Holy Spirit, suggesting that our participation in all of this isn't passive, but rather very, very active. And in the Greek, receive means to claim or to take oneself, or my favorite, to give access to oneself. When we give the third person of the triune God, the person identified with the Father and the Son, that being the Holy Spirit, when we give him full access to our lives, we can expect that he will speak to us, according to Acts 13 and 2. He's going to intercede for us, according to Romans 8, 26. He's going to teach us, according to John 14 and 26. And he will guide us as the Apostle Paul was guiding in Acts 16, uh, verses 6 through 8. All of which empower us to do the works that he did on earth. Even greater things, John 14 and 12 says. But not by might nor by power, Zechariah reminds us, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So when we are living a spirit filled life. In short, we can expect the unexpected. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we want to live a spirit-filled life today. Help us to receive your Holy Spirit. We want to give you full access to every area of our lives. Holy Spirit, guide us, teach us, remind us of your love for us. And as your heads are bowed and your eyes closed, the first step in living a spirit-filled life It's to confess that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived the life we should have lived, 
died a death we should have died and rose again on the third day. So if that is you and you've yet to give your life to Christ and want to surrender to him everything today, I would love to pray with you. If that is you, please raise your hand and we will pray with you this morning. Lord, we bless you today. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers us to be all that you have called us to be, that allows us to expect the unexpected within our cultural paradigm, but is it's expected and is just the order of the day for your Holy Spirit and what you want to accomplish through us. Your great commission says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We need you, Lord Jesus to live. You are the air that we breathe. We thank you for coming. We thank you for calming. We thank you for confirming. We thank you for breathing. And we thank you for bidding us. Help us, Lord, to respond well. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.